The interim government of Haiti has called on foreign militaries to intervene in the country. Will they answer its call? Welcome to a pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. The government of Haiti is putting out a call for an armed intervention by foreign countries in the midst of spiraling violence in a cholera outbreak. And so far, the United Nations signals that it might be on board. We talked to Haitian Americans in Miami about why they say that would be a very bad idea. We'll also be talking with the former U.S. diplomat to Haiti about the situation on the ground and about the history of U.S. policy towards the nation. And also, a verdict has been reached against the shooter of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. We talk about the long trial and what the sentencing could look like. All that and more on the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. It's been more than four years since the mass shooting that left 17 dead and 17 injured at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. And this week, the long trial and criminal court proceedings against the shooter have started to draw to a close. WLRN's Gerard Albert III has been following the trial from start to finish, and he joins us now in the studio to talk about the latest developments. Gerard, welcome. Gerard, so it's been a long trial, drawn out process, more than four years since this shooting that shook our community and the nation to its core. Bring us into the courtroom as the verdict against the shooter was being read. What what did it look like and feel like in there? Well, the courtroom was as packed as it's been during the entire trial. Uh, Most of the families were there, uh, national media outlets, and then just people also from the public who were interested the the verdict came out and it was about an hour long process of reading all 17 counts and uh, slowly as the judge started to read out the counts parents realized that the shooter was likely going to get a life sentence which he did and those parents were they they, they looked distraught they were wiping tears away they were hugging each other um, it was it was very somber and you cover the trial of the confessed shooter from front to back what what were some of the most pivotal moments in the trial leading up to this verdict? Well, I think you have to talk about the first week or just the first day where videos were played from inside the classrooms, from uh, from students who were filming on Snapchat. They, you could hear the guns. You can hear the kids screaming. And then, of course, when the defense started their uh, their case, you know, nobody really knew what they were going to talk about. And uh, hearing about hearing about the shooter's birth mother and and those struggles and her struggles with alcoholism and drug use and how that affected the shooter. And then, of course, uh, the last day, which was the verdict, which I think surprised a lot of parents. So let's talk about the verdict a little bit, because the the death penalty was on the table for this case. Um, But the jury was unable to reach a unanimous decision to put the, the shooter to death, which is required by Florida law. What do we know about the deliberations, how the decision-making process played out that did not opt to go a route that could bring the death penalty? Well, we know it was tense, but you've got to figure it's going to be tense. Um, Other than that, all we really know is that one or more jurors voted for life because they said that mitigating circumstances, which are things that the defense presented, things like the shooter had mental illness and his mother abused drugs and alcohol, that those things outweighed the aggravating factors that the prosecution proved, which were things like that the shooting was heinous, atrocious, and cruel, 
and that it was cold, calculated, and premeditated. And although those things were proven beyond a reasonable doubt to the jurors, the mitigating factors outweighed those for at least one juror. Right. So so just to, to repeat it back and to help the audience understand a little bit. So essentially, at least one juror felt that all these other factors of the early childhood of, of, of the shooter and, you know, things that happened when his mother was pregnant, that those things might have impacted things so much where putting him to death would not be you know, an option that that juror wanted to go in. Right. We know that mental health was at, at the center of this jury's decision. And, you know, the, the appeals process for death penalty cases has been known to drag on for years and years and decades in some cases. And, you know, in this case, opting not to go the death penalty route could actually bring closure to families much quicker in the sense that they won't have to come back into to court you know, on, on an open-ended basis, is there any um, recognition of that by families or are they just angry? I mean, a lot of them wanted the death penalty in this case. You know, I, I think when they spoke to press yesterday, a lot of them were angry and that's understandable. And it, it's, you know, we've yet to see how they're going to react in the years to come. But But what's for sure is that the ones that came out and advocated for school safety and advocated for gun control laws afterwards, they're only going to continue that work after this ruling. Um, they have no intention of stopping or slowing down that mission. And one of the jurors has alleged that she was threatened by another juror when they were deliberating on the case, um, which is a pretty remarkable thing, just the allegation itself. Um, what could that allegation mean for where this entire process stands? Well, there's a hearing about that going on actually in a couple minutes. And it's unlikely that it will change anything. Really, at this point, uh, Nicola, uh, the shooter is going to get a life sentence from the judge. And um, that'll happen in November uh, when she officially sentences him. Yeah. Can we can we talk about because... Um, what happened this week was the verdict was read, but it's not quite the sentencing. So so what's next in this process? Sure. The jury recommends a sentence. So in, in when they recommend a life sentence, there's no appeal. But if they were to recommend death, there could have been an appeal and would have been from the defense. But now the victims, um, meaning those who um, were shot and families of the victims who were killed, get a chance to speak at the sentencing hearing, which will be in November. It won't change anything but um, their their voices will be heard. And is, is there any sense of the long view on this when it comes to the death penalty in Florida, how such a high-profile case like this, a lot of people felt that if there was any case where the death penalty would be, would be warranted and, and given by a jury, it would be this case, and it didn't happen. And now we have, you know, Governor DeSantis criticizing the jury, Charlie Crist, who's running you know, against him as governor criticizing it um, is, is I mean, the Florida law would have to change. Is there any sense that that could happen? Not yet. I mean, it, it has only been a day. But you have to remember that every case, all the, the, the jury, all they have to go on is the facts of that case. They can't consider the, the bigger picture things. They have to focus on that case. So it really is a case by case thing for the death penalty. And I, I don't know if people will rally behind this ruling now and try and change that legislation or if lawyers will now be more hesitant to try for the death penalty. But 
for the jurors, all they could consider was the facts of this case, and they really couldn't look at the broader implications of it. And and just to repeat it back to listeners, the Florida law is that a verdict has to be unanimous in order to impose the death penalty. Yes. Um, what else? What's next? What are you looking at? I'm I'm sorry. We we actually have to go. That's uh, Gerard Albert the Third. He's a WLRN reporter for Broward County. Still to come, the Haitian government's asking for foreign militaries to invade the country. How do Haitian Americans in Miami feel about that? I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Haiti's political and economic climate has been spiraling for some time now. But it seems now to be at a breaking point. Insecurity, the fuel crisis, and the rising cost of living led to large protests that would halt activity in major cities for hours. Cholera has returned to the country and has already killed more than a dozen people, in part because of a lack of clean water. Gangs have taken over most of the area in Port-au-Prince, Haiti's capital. Roads have been blocked off in the capital and across the country, preventing humanitarian aid from reaching the country's vulnerable populations. To put it short, Haiti is in a humanitarian crisis. And this is prompting acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry to call on foreign militaries to intervene. Here's Ned Price, the spokesperson for the U.S. State Department, speaking at a press briefing on Wednesday this week. United States notes with gro- with great concern the growing cholera epidemic and the prolonged gang-imposed fuel blockade. We are in receipt of the government of Haiti's appeal for urgent international armed security assistance to address the current humanitarian crisis in Haiti and the Secretary General's letter urging support for such a force. We are currently reviewing this request in coordination with international partners. And I do want to get in here that this is a special pledge edition of the, of the South Florida Roundup. You can make your donations at WLRN and continue to support programs like this by calling 866-247-9576. And we're joined now to talk about the situation in Haiti by Leonie Hermantin, the Director of Development and Communication at Saint La Haitian Neighborhood Center in Miami. Leonie, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Danny. A pleasure. So, Leonie, Share with us, please, what went through your head when you saw Haiti's de facto prime minister, Ariel Henry, call for a foreign intervention into the country right now? Well, you know, I have to say that, um, you know, I share uh, many uh, outrage, but it wasn't a surprise. It's a definite strategy that powerless, unpopular, unelected dictators uh, use, particularly when their tenure is legitimized by countries like the United States and the European um, uh, countries. So, yeah, I mean, he did exactly follow the playbook. I'm powerless. I'm unpopular. Everyone within the country is asking for my departure. And so in order to remain, I'm going to use my allies who continue to define the will of the people of Haiti. And and you you are referring to a few things. Um, I just want to make sure the audience, even people that don't have any idea what we're talking about, know um, first off that the prime minister, the acting prime minister was not elected. And then there is mass protests happening in Haiti calling on the Biden administration to pull support from 
his de facto government. Absolutely. It's been, it's while the, the, the population, the, those who took taken to the street and even many in civil society, um, institutions in Haiti have been asking for his departure. None has asked for, uh, a foreign intervention. And, you know, I want to just acknowledge that the, the situation, as we understand it, on the ground in Haiti is is pretty dire. I mean, cholera has returned. There's no fuel to to for the, the water stations that are needed for, for hygiene. Entire parts of the country are, are inaccessible. I mean, gangs control the majority of the territory in the, the capital. Uh, I mean, how, how can something like this be addressed short of an armed conflict well we're not saying we're not saying that you know it, it can be done with within haiti's capacity right now the police mm. have absolutely been outgunned outarmed and outfunded uh, because remember that the gangs are not operating in a vacuum they have been created bred incubated and are actively funded by a certain sector of haitian society whose um you know who, who gain a lot who will make a lot of money and benefit a lot from the chaos that they've created and so we're not saying that uh there cannot, there has not, there cannot be an intervention. We know that the police force has to be fortified, and that most probably would come from um, outside sources. But we're just concerned that you know, if there's a fire, is there a, if there's a fire in a very complex, complicated landscape, you don't send firefighters who are being direct given direction by an illegitimate uh, leader, a leader who has a lot to gain by crushing popular uh, opposition. And so, you know, we're just concerned that this call to inter for intervention is a way for this leader to crush the voices that have been uh, rising against his illegitimate um, rule. And, and, and I, so, I, I want to I, I just want to clarify for for our audience that um, there's been broadly reported, um, you know, factual reports and even things coming from the 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 government of the, the former president, the, the late president, Jovenel Moïse, that um, basically acknowledged that the political party that the acting prime minister is part of played a role in the creation of these gangs. And and that's a part of what you're referring to, is that there, there, yes. there is a well, nexus it, here. It's, yes, I mean, the, the gangs were created since, remember that the UN came into Haiti in 2004, um, again, with, with the mission to promote, to police, to promote peace and justice because of the gang. Because again, there was a proliferation of gangs particularly in Cité Soleil. And so the gangs, um, the gangs had uh, been weaponized again um, in 2004 to support, anyway, I don't want to get into the history, but the gangs pre, pre have been around since 2000, 2004. And, and so, uh, the, yes, they, they did provide more fuel to the fire but the gangs were a creation, were created um, way before to 
Jovenel Moise became mm-hmm. president or Michel Martelly became president. Right. And, you know, you know with things as they are at, the, at this point, um, is there another option? I mean, because part of what um, a lot of Haitians are calling for on, you know, the island of Hispaniola and a lot of Haitian Americans here is calling are calling for is for the Biden administration to pull support of this government that a lot of people see as illegitimate. I mean, what what, 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 what is the other option on the table here? The other option is the option that the U.S. government does not want to talk about, but it's that there are Haitian voices in Haiti that are articulating solutions. You have the Montana group and many other civil society groups who have been meeting, who have come together, who have been, who represent multiple, it's, it's a unique, it's, it's, a, it's unique, it's the first time in, in, in my, you know, country, my, my understanding of Haitian history that you have folks from so many different, sometimes opposing sectors, from the clergy, from labor, from rural communities who have come together to say, we need to be given the space to revision, we, 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 we see what Haiti is going to look like. And they have suggestions about how the violence can be uh, uh, stopped. They have suggested, again, that the police force, the army that's still existing, can be fortified with for outside support. I mean, they're not saying that, that, that peace can be attained without foreign support. They're just not supporting the type of intervention that this prime minister is proposing. Because what he is proposing is just to prop up his illegitimate government. And you've been pretty critical of how much attention Haitian Americans get when it comes to setting the U.S. foreign policy agenda towards Haiti. Um, And in contrast, specifically with how much attention and and the the treatment that Cuban Americans get when it comes to setting U.S. foreign policy towards Cuba? Um, can, sure, can, can, and you, can you expand as well? Can, can you expand on that for us, please? Well, you know, the the diaspora, the Haitian diaspora, has been again extremely united and extremely concerned about what's going on in Haiti as Haitian Americans and as American citizens, uh, particularly citizens who have supported the Democratic Party for a long time in majority, uh, there was an expectation at the beginning, especially when um, President Biden came to to Little Haiti, uh, took a need to say, to vow his, 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 his support of our community, to vow that he was going to listen to us and basically was going to give us an open door. Uh, He has refused to meet with Haitian American leadership. And we know that um, there has been greater courtesy and a greater open door policy afforded to our Venezuelan and Cuban counterparts. They've got, they've received access and we have thus far thus far, not been given not just one meeting with the president. And that is shocking and disappointing. And and I I will add here that the Assistant Secretary of State, Brian Nichols, 
did go to to Port au Prince this week on a, on a delegation and on Twitter he posted photos of him meeting with the American Chamber of Commerce in in Haiti and um you know I'm bringing it up because it was kind of notable that there was only you know there's many people and there was only one black person which actually suggests that there was very few Haitians involved in that meeting well, you said it, Danny. Uh, our voices really don't matter. Uh, our voices, and I have to say again, black voice, black Haitian voices don't matter. Uh, we have been, you know, we especially the diaspora. I mean, we have been excluded. We have not been allowed. We have not been consulted. We have not been consulted about what U.S. policy should be in Haiti. We have not. Uh, we have other third parties who've come to us and said the White House wants to know what mm -hmm. what you guys want to do, but I'm so we have never been approached directly. Th thank you. And I'm, well, I'm sorry. About... We're, we're gonna ha we're gonna have to leave it there. Sure. I'm sorry. Leonie Hermantine is with the Haitian Neighborhood Center Saint Law in Miami. Still to come, we talk to a former U.S. diplomat to Haiti about the history of U.S. policy towards that country. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. As we talk about a possible military intervention into Haiti, we wanted to talk about things on the diplomatic front. Foreign countries have a long and troubled history meddling in Haiti, from France bankrupting the country by imposing repayments for the fact that Haitians freed themselves from slavery, to U.S. Marines occupying the nation for almost two decades in the early 1900s to a troubled United Nations peacekeeping mission after the 2010 earthquake. So we wanted to speak to someone who has direct experience with how this kind of diplomacy works and sometimes doesn't work. Dan Foote is a former U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti. He publicly resigned from that position last year. Dan, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Are you with us, Dan? We'll give it a second. I want to remind our audience to 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 tweet us at WLRN. And it's also a special pledge edition of the South Florida Roundup. You can make your donation to us and continue to support this programming by calling 866-247-9576. And you can tweet us. Good at afternoon, WLRN. Tokayo. <laughs> nice to meet you, Tokayo. Um, so Dan Foote, um, like I said, former U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti. Welcome to the program. So uh, let's get into it. Dan, when you hear Acting Prime Minister Ariel Henry call for a foreign armed forces to come into the country and you see United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres backing that call so far, what does that say to you as a former diplomat? Um, business as usual. It tells me that the international community is going to go back to Haiti another time and try the exact same formula that has failed uh, numerous times in the past, including several times in the last 40 years. Um, and as you know, Einstein's definition of insanity is to try the same thing over and over and expect a different result. And Dan, you, you were extremely critical of U.S. foreign policy towards Haiti, even though you were a part of it at some time, um, you know, before you resigned. I just I'm curious if there 
is an overriding mission of U.S. foreign policy towards Haiti that you can identify, what would you say that mission is? Stability in one word. It's always been stability. And that's not a terrible goal to have, but without it attacking the drivers of instability, the insecurity, the corruption kleptocracy, poverty, lack of education, health care, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's going to be very difficult for the Haitians to move forward. You know, I mean, I want to ask you because, you know, you were in a you were a special envoy last year. You resigned just over a year ago. And, you know, if the U.S. foreign policy towards is stability, I mean, it doesn't seem like that's necessarily been working out the last couple of years. <laughs> no, it, I mean, it hasn't worked. You can go back to uh, 94. We had an intervention of U.S. troops. Uh, 04, we had an intervention. And it's just gotten exponentially worse each time. Uh, Haiti used to be pretty nice. People used to go there on vacations and honeymoons and stuff, 40, 50 years ago it is worse than somalia now so stability is the goal but it has failed because underlying u.s foreign policy subconsciously is this unspoken or spoken only in hushed tones in the corners um belief that these dumb black haitian people can't govern themselves and when you resigned rather publicly from your position last year, after, you know, it was, it was a couple months after the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moïse. Um, what was it about the situation at the time that you could no longer support? I had uh, been involved in the planning of the reconstruction after the 2010 earthquake, $5.1 billion in U.S. taxpayer money. So I sat in the room and I noticed that there were no Haitians there. And I questioned it at the time, uh, but not vociferously enough. Uh, and I went back after the assassination and I saw that Haiti is, yeah, pick a number, at least 100 times worse than when I left in in 2012. So when I went and the Haitians asked me to listen to them, I it took me a minute to but I decided we failed so many times. I need to listen to them. And when I saw that the US government, my colleagues were ignoring a civil society federation of groups and political opposition parties and and the folks from a across the country representing a lot of Haitians in favor of Ariel Henry, who has turned out to be nothing but a uh, ineffective dictator who has made no progress in the, the 14 months he's been in power. So take that, ignoring the voice of the Haitian people, backing a dictator, and then the terrible images of Del Rio, Texas, and the refugees, uh, all of whom were deported pretty much. Uh, I just couldn't look myself in the mirror and, and be part of that anymore. And you, you just made reference to it, the the migration part of this equation, because as things get more unstable in any country for that matter, but in, in Haiti in particular, because of its proximity to the U.S., 
we get more Haitian migration. And, you know, just so far in this fiscal year, the Coast Guard has interdicted more than 7,000 Haitian migrants coming by sea. And that's just the Coast Guard in the Caribbean. That doesn't count the almost 30,000 that have been deported back from the border crossings. Uh, and, and deportations are counterproductive because they reintroduce desperate people who have already spent all of their money trying to get to the United States through terrible conditions. They send them back to a failed state that can't come close to providing for the citizens it already has. Again, they have no money. The International Organization for Migration gives them $100, turns them out on the street, and they wind up in these terrible slums uh, run by gangs. And it, uh, we've already seen a pretty significant number of recidivists, uh, deportees from Del Rio who were sent back to Haiti and they've been caught again in Texas trying to go back. So, you know, we're not going to stop most of these people. They're going to turn around and go back to the States. And you and I would do the same thing given the deplorable conditions in Haiti and the fact that the United States government has sat with its hands in its pockets since I resigned. Um, and what we said was going to happen a year ago is exactly where we are right now. And you you made you made mention to at the, at the beginning of our conversation that if foreign forces, if, if U.S. forces go in, which we know the, the U.S. government is considering, um, that it would be, you know, the definition of insanity, repeating the same thing and expecting different uh, outcomes. With that said, I mean, the, the, the situation is obviously very critical and in, in, in a large crisis. Um, I mean, what option is there to bring some semblance of stability, if not a show of force of some kind? Um, so here's the problem. And this is why I think it's more complex than it has been at other times. Um, if we send an international force or U.S. force in right now, their mission would be to tamp down the gangs, dismantle, dislodge, and get rid of them. Uh, however, the Haitian people are out in force on the streets right now protesting their uh, illegitimate de facto prime minister anointed by the international community, Ariel Henry. And I believe that there's an enormous risk of uh, collateral damage and innocent civilians uh, protesting just so people will hear their own voice because American and international soldiers have never been good at all at differentiating between good people and bad people in Haiti. And I don't know if you have an answer to this, but, but what kind of role could the Haitian diaspora in places like South Florida play in helping Haiti move forward? Um, you know, in the best of circumstances. I honestly believe that as long as the United States backs what Haitian people see as a dictator, Ariel Henry, whether we send in troops or not, we can't solve the problem. So I, I would uh, I would ask the diaspora and my friends in South Florida 
to let the Biden administration know that Ariel Henry, a unanimous government, including him, is bound to fail and bound to lead to tons more bloodshed. So please uh, make your voices heard in any way you can uh, in our friends in Washington's ears. And so so. The State Department this week did announce that it's putting visa restrictions on certain members of the government and other Haitians that have been, quote, providing support to Haitian street gangs. Um, they did not release the names of these people, but they, they do say that they are starting to to do things and that there's much more to come. Um, what, what's your reaction on, on that kind of approach? Please, uh, the gangs are not going to be dissuaded because we tell them they can't go shopping in Florida. These guys don't have visas. They don't need visas. They don't want visas. Um, If eventually the U.S. goes after some of the people higher up who fund the gangs and political actors like Ariel Henry, uh, that would be a step in the right direction. But visa sanctions are not not a be-all, end-all. Everybody likes to have a visa, but uh, it's a small, a, a small symbolic gesture, I think. Right, and just for our audience to to know, the the State Department says that individual visa records are confidential, so they cannot provide any details about who might be targeted by those sanctions. Um, I think we're going to have to leave it here. Dan Foote is a former U.S. Special Envoy to Haiti. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure, Dan. And that'll do it for the South Florida Roundup Special Pledge Edition. It's produced by Natu Twe. Our, in- our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is a senior editor of news. Christine DiMatte is interim newscast editor. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. The director of radio operations and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mares. Richard Ives answers the phone. I'm Danny Rivero. Thanks for calling and thanks for listening and supporting WLRN.